A woman with a blonde bob and a black leather dress stares unflinchingly at the camera. Unfortunately, women are 25% less likely to get a raise than men. Because of that, I was asked, Hey, Cindy, we want to turn you into a chatbot that helps women ask for a raise. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a fantastic idea. What a great cause. Then they said, exactly. And because it's for a good cause, could you do it for free? And I said, nope. Pay me. Isn't that the point? Because I know my worth. So should you. In less than 40 seconds, you have proof that the woman sitting in front of you might just, and these are her words, get women the absolute goddamn shit ton of money they deserve. This is Cindy Gallup. She's a former advertising executive. She spent almost 30 years in brand building, marketing, and advertising. But what she's done in her post-advertising career is even more remarkable. She's a person who loves advertising, but also someone who has done a great deal to upend the power structures within the agencies that control it and then raised more eyebrows explaining on the TED stage in 2009 what it's like to date much younger men. And when I date younger men, I have sex with younger men. And when I have sex with younger men, I encounter very directly and personally the real ramifications of the creeping ubiquity of hardcore pornography in our culture. Again, unflinching. As she often does, she decided to do something about the problem she was calling out. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising. The good, the bad, and the ugly. In fact, this is the first episode of the second season of Influence. A quick recap, who am I, and why a show about advertising? I'm the chief creative officer at WeTransfer and author of The Trust Manifesto, what you need to do to create a better internet. But I spent my early career in advertising. These days, as a buyer and a seller of advertising, I see a very different side of the industry, an industry that's changing rapidly. Last season, we talked about the history of advertising, the people, ideas, and campaigns that influence not just advertising, but the world as we know it. And this season, we talk about advertising's future as it's happening. We record this season as the global pandemic is upending lives and livelihoods everywhere, at a time when the whole world is going through a sudden dramatic change. We talk to business leaders across industries, music, cannabis, VR, and PR about what's happening today and where things are going. And now, finally, my sit-down with Cindy Gallup. We reached her at her apartment in New York. We should note, we taped this joyful conversation well before the world went on lockdown. Thanks for being here, Cindy. Hi, guys. I'd like to start with your start. Sure. So tell me, you grew up in Brunei. How did you, how did you begin your life there? What were your parents doing? So my father was English, my mother's Chinese, and I was born in the UK. But when I was six, we moved to Brunei in Borneo because my father got a job there. He always loved um, Asia and very much wanted to work there. My parents are both teachers. He got a job as an assistant headmaster. And so he moved the family to Brunei. My mother got a job as a teacher there. And I and my sisters grew up there. Until you went to university in Oxford? 
Oxford was where I fell madly in love with theatre because it has a very thriving student drama scene. And I did everything there. I acted, directed, wrote, stage managed. Um, I was president of my college, Somerville's Drama Society. But I knew I wasn't good enough to be an actress or a director. I I absolutely decided I wanted to work in theatre for the rest of my life, as you do at that age. And when I was young, I used to draw a lot. And so my friends at Oxford pulled me into designing theatre posters for their shows. And from doing that, I kind of got sucked into selling and promoting their shows. And I really enjoyed doing that. And so when I was looking for jobs in theatre... I thought, you know, I don't see any of my friends wanting to do this. It must be easier to find jobs like this. And and it was. So that's how I became a theatre publicity and marketing officer. And how did you make the jump to advertising? Um, I was the marketing officer at the Yvonne Arno Theatre at Guildford. Uh, This is in the UK. And then I became the marketing officer at the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool. And I had a wonderful time. But, you know, after several years of doing this, I began getting completely fed up with working 24-7 and earning chicken feed, which is what happens in the theatre. And it was around the time that I was getting a bit disillusioned that part of my job promoting the theatre was um, giving talks about it to groups. And so I gave a talk to a group of women on Merseyside. And after the talk, one of the women came up to me and said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. And I thought, okay, that is the universe telling me something. Time to sell out and go into advertising. And so that's what really prompted my move into the advertising industry. So did you start your advertising career in Liverpool and then you moved down to London? No, not at all. I started my advertising career with extreme difficulty. This was um, the mid-80s when, believe it or not, advertising was an incredibly sexy industry that everyone was dying to get into. No one would believe you today, I know. And so (laughs) I I began applying um, to ad agencies cold. And the issue I ran into was that nobody would give me a job in advertising without experience, but I couldn't get experience unless I got a job in advertising. So I realized that I would have to go right back to the beginning. And so I joined what was called the Milk Round at Oxford and applied for graduate trainee entry-level jobs in agencies. And I got offered an entry-level trainee job at Ted Bates in London, back in the days when Ted Bates still existed. It was the first job I was offered and I, and I jumped at it. And so that, that was how I made the break into advertising in the summer of 1985. And then you went on to work for JWT and, and then finally BBH. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's right, yeah. What were the best campaigns or what was the work that you, you're most proud of? Oh, I mean, I mean, tons of it. At Ted Bates, we created an enormously successful campaign for DHL that featured the red swoosh representing how swiftly DHL couriered, you know, documents and packages. We licensed Dana Ross singing Ain't No Mountain High Enough in terms of, you know, the swiftness of delivery. Morgan, Alaska. Okay, I remember that commercial. Yeah, excellent. Um, Yeah, because that was a very, very effective campaign. I worked on Toshiba. Hello, Tosh got a Toshiba. That's an amazing campaign. Hello, hello. Imagine uh, an animation of something that looks like a patent drawing or a or a blueprint. Hello, hello, hello. Tosh got a Toshiba. Hello, Tosh got a Toshiba. A man all made up of lines and circles, standing sort of next to a very boxy TV. Flattest square is tube. The flattest square is tube. The blueprint man reaches to the bottom of the box and turns on the TV. And as his arm crosses 
But into the screen, the arm becomes real. That's good. That's good. Hello, Tosh got a Toshiba. Hello, Tosh got a Toshiba. I worked on London Docklands, if you okay. remember, the crows. And the crows. What was it? Three crows meeting on the top of Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square. One with a watch waiting impatiently as the others get sort of dragged up onto the top. Oh, oh late again. That new town my firm's moved to, 50 miles as the crow flies. And believe me, I have to. Here's another late come up. 150 miles, boy, oh, 150 flaming miles. All business development areas have got one thing in common. They're all not in London. All except the London Docklands. Mm, I walked here. I didn't get where I am today by being somewhere else. And then at BBH, uh, I led the pitch for Polaroid Europe, um, ran that business. I actually also led the pitch for one Baby Sham, if you remember that brand back in the day. You know, so we still have Baby Sham champagne glasses that my grandmother gave to us. Oh my that God, we, that's that fantastic. Given away free. Yeah, only three of them. If anyone has a fourth, I'd like That's an iconic brand, I have to say, and it was a lot of fun working on it. Hello, Tosh, got a Toshiba. I would love to know how you got permission to actually run that campaign because it certainly was something very different at the time. Unbelievably annoying at a certain point because you heard it so often. But that's not a campaign that would have been very easily bought, I would imagine. Um, Well, um, I have to be honest and say that, you know, I joined GGT to work on it. So I wasn't there, you know, at the inception. Um, So I'm afraid I I can't speak to that story. But I can say that what you raise touches on something I feel very strongly about in our industry today, which is Mm -hmm. the ability to sell and produce great work is entirely dependent on building a relationship of exceptional trust with one's clients. And that is absolutely what, in my day, account management was charged with. And our discipline was enormously valued because we were responsible for creating the climate of receptivity that ensured that great work was welcomed and appreciated and valued and approved and went ahead to production. And that is absolutely something that was drilled into me from the very start of my advertising career and I I felt very strongly about ever since. It's why I deplore the way in which our industry devalues account management, thinks it can do without it, and why I deplore the fact that, you know, the, the importance of building that relationship, I think, is frequently under Underestimated today. Right. Um, there is also an incredible task to build trust with the people that are producing the work. So the trust that you need to develop to, you know, translate a client brief to a creative team to get them to produce great work that they trust you to go back and sell is also critical. Absolutely. I was going to ask you about the best campaigns, but I think I would love to know more about a campaign where or a relationship where you had the best trust with a team and the best trust with a client that led to the best work? Uh, Well, I think one of the supreme examples of that, given where this campaign was able to go, was the ACTS campaign slash LINCS campaign at BBH. So I, I moved to New York 22 years ago to basically start up um, BBH's New York office, which began as me in a room with a phone, starting an advertising agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace, which was a lively old ride. And we were asked to stealth pitch for the launch of Axe into the American marketplace. And we won the pitch and we we then worked on 
concepting the campaign that would ensure that Axe was launched successfully into the US. And bear in mind, this wasn't about launching a brand, this was about launching an entire category. Because before the Axe launch, male deodorant body sprays did not exist in the US. The very fact, as I say, that we were launching a category meant that there had to be tremendous trust in the first instance between, you know, ourselves and our clients at Unilever. And this drove so much innovation the way we went about it. I always remember Unilever saying to us, so you think that the target audience in the US for Axe is, you know, 16, 24-year-old young men. It's not. Our target is the deodorant buyer at Walmart. Because essentially, if Walmart didn't buy into the whole idea of Axe and stock it, then you could kiss goodbye to any idea of a successful launch because Walmart obviously is, you know, the biggest mainstream distributor of toiletries here in the US. And so, you know, we basically developed a whole campaign that was designed to make Walmart absolutely passionate about stocking acts. And so we presented them an incredibly creative way of using Walmart TV, which which are their in-store TV screens. And we created a campaign for Axe's launch that made it look as if on those screens you were watching something happening on security cameras somewhere else in the store. And so you saw these grainy black and white um, little videos of what appeared to be an aisle end with a display of acts. You know, young man wanders into view, picks up a can of Axe, looks at it, sprays it on himself, sniffs, wanders out of view. And then, you know, a little later reappears, running back the way he came, um, pursued by a vast number of female <laughs> Walmart shoppers. Which mirrored the TV campaigns, right? And what did Walmart think of the in-store ads? I mean, it was just a lovely campaign. I mean, Walmart loved that very creative use of, of their in-store TV. And um, they absolutely embraced Axe. And that had a huge amount to do with the success of that launch because Unilever gave us a very steep target. They said, we were launching in August of 2002 and they said, we want Axe to be 3% of the entire male deodorant market by the end of the year and we made it for. Super impressive. At that time, you know, there was, I mean, there was a lot of pioneering happening around, you know, creativity and media. And I think there, you know, there were opportunities like that progress to today, you know, the world is vastly different, right? It's very difficult, I think, to cut through in the same way using the same techniques as we as you could back then. As someone who's been through, you know, I don't know how many years it is in total, but let's say it's 27 years or something in marketing, brand building, advertising, the industry has changed enormously. What advice can you give from people from those early days of branding and advertising that could be applied today? Well, first of all, I would exhort your listenership to search for online a talk I gave eight years ago called Redesigning the Business of Advertising. Because I've been talking to our industry about how to redesign itself for the future for a very long time. And that talk from eight years ago is as relevant today as it was then because nobody's doing it. Okay, Cindy, so tell us your formula for business success. There is a guaranteed formula for business success. And if you apply this formula, you will be successful, guaranteed. It's very simple, and it goes like this. If you seek out, identify, hire and retain the very best and most talented people in the marketplace, if you then give those people an inspirational and compelling vision of what you want them to achieve for you in the business, 
And if you then free those people up to achieve that vision and those goals, basically empower them and enable them to achieve them using their own individual skills and talents in whatever way they decide to, if at the same time you tell those people, you demonstrate those people how enormously you value them, um, not just in financial terms, compensation-wise, but verbally, vocally, every single day. And if you enable those people to share in the profit that they help create, you'll be successful. It's that simple. And virtually nobody does it because what that formula requires is a high-trust working environment. And virtually every single working environment is low-trust. The very nature of the hierarchical corporate structure is predicated on the idea that the person at the top does not trust the people just below them, who in turn do not trust the people just below them. So there ends up being one big cascade of low trust all the way to the bottom like a champagne fountain. So can you give us an example of what happens when there is trust? Trust is absolutely critical to enabling creativity to flourish today and to enabling brilliant, effective work in today's real-time, responsive environment. A really terrific example is a marketing case study that is still talked about today, seven years after the fact, which is when, back in 2013, the whole of America is watching the Super Bowl, and there was the famous power outage, and the Super Bowl was blacked out for about half an hour. And during that time, Oreo Cookies tweeted this ad that shot around the world, which said, you can still dunk in the dark, and got thousands of retweets and ended up netting vast amounts of media coverage and equating to millions of dollars in, in unpaid media. And if I remember correctly, it was just a really simple ad, a lone sort of Oreo cookie on a shadowed background with that perfectly timed caption. The reason that ad happened was because um, the client and the agency created a war room for the Super Bowl of representatives from both sides. And they basically said um, to that group, you know, um, anything topical that happens in the Super Bowl, get all over it. Create whatever you want to and put it out there. We trust you. You know what the brand stands for. You know the brand's values. You know the brand's tone of voice. You create whatever you think is appropriate. You don't have to put it through the usual seven layers of approval. Just put it out there. And the you can still dunk in the dark um, ad is what resulted. And that is absolutely the way you have to work today. Because today, brand communication has to be organic. And you know, way too many brands and agencies are wedded to the idea that a campaign has a beginning, a middle, and an end, are wedded to the idea that you create something, you put it out there, and you don't change a thing, as opposed to the amazing opportunity we have today to put ideas out there, monitor how they are received and responded to, make them interactive, and build on them very, very rapidly to take them someplace even better. And so, you know, that is one of the things that I really urge everybody in our industry to focus on. Trust how you build it and how that drives phenomenal, effective creative work. And have you worked at a place that managed to achieve that formula or have you created a company that managed to achieve that formula? Um, well, obviously, you know, that this is what I 
endeavoured to bring to BBH New York, bearing in mind that, you know, that was not my company. So we were an office of mm -hmm. a global network. But I live my own philosophies. You're clearly very active on social media. So something like 75,000 Twitter followers and you also seem to use them as a real force for good. Was that the intention when you first started using social media that you were going to use it as a mouthpiece to advocate for pay equity and women in leadership or did it just evolve that way? All I'm doing on social media is I'm just being myself. I am living my own values and I am putting out there things that I believe in, things that I find interesting, things that I think are funny, and I don't give a damn whether anybody else agrees. I have never set out to build followers. My following is entirely organic, but I'm just living my life on social media the way I live my life IRL. So that is actually something I encourage people to do generally, because a lot of people get very nervous about social media. And, you know, first of all, if all you are doing is being true to yourself on social media, there's nothing to worry about because you're just being you. And secondly, I just encourage people to put whatever they want to out there into the world and, and see what the response is. But it's a very different process to the one that you were trained in. Previously, at an agency like BBH, I would imagine that you would have been taught to keep things under wraps, to you know wait for that campaign to be finalised and then bring it to the world. Now what you're saying is you need to basically show warts and all, everything as it's happening in real time. Um, no, what I would say I was trained in was the importance of listening to consumers. And... I am passionate about our industry. Everything I do to help it reinvent itself for the future is because I bloody love advertising and I bloody love the advertising industry. And I deplore the fact that from the outside, our industry is not valued. And incidentally, you know, our industry has sadly colluded in its own devaluation over many decades. Something I try and put right by talking about this publicly is the fact that people don't understand to be good at what we do, you have to be an absolute master of human psychology. You have to be phenomenally good at understanding people, at identifying consumer insights. Those are things that stand you in very good stead at the world at large, no matter what stage that world is at. And those are things that stand you in very good stead when it comes to doing what we do in lots of different media that never existed back when we started our careers. And so I see what I do and what I advise agencies do as simply being a continuum of that, basically, with the benefit that now we have the opportunity to interact with our consumers in a way that we never used to. And we can make the work even better because of that. What have you learned through listening to your followers? You know, I realized some years ago that if you were following me on social media, it'd be very easy to look at my life and presume that it was incredibly glamorous and privileged because I appear to be doing a huge amount of traveling and I'm in some very lovely places and staying in some lovely hotels. Um, as an entrepreneur, and this has been true for years, I've been working flat out, unpaid, full-time. So I've had to hustle alongside to support myself, which I do through paid public speaking and consultancy. So, you know, all that travel is because I'm being paid to go somewhere and speak. And it's obviously the conferences and the organizers who are putting me up in those lovely hotels, those lovely places. But at the same time, I'm scrabbling to build an extraordinarily challenging startup in the most challenging sector of all, which is sex tech. So I decided some years back 
that I was going to be completely open about how shitty the life of a sex tech entrepreneur is. So I coined the hashtag startup stress. And I just began talking on social media very publicly about all of the challenges that we faced, all of the difficulties, the long dark nights of the soul, you know, the hideousness of I'm awake at 3 a.m. with jet lag and everything just looks so appallingly problematic right now. And doing that got a phenomenal response. People wrote to me going, oh my God, Cindy, thank you for talking openly about what a nightmare it is being a startup founder, because the modern Silicon Valley is, you've got to appear, you're crushing it at all times, you're doing storming well. And, and by the way, I have to tell you that it is extremely de-stressing to be completely frank about how stressful your life is. When you're not having to put up a facade and pretend that everything's great, there's something remarkably relaxing about that. So let's go into Make Love Not Porn, because this is, this is you now, right? This is your focus, the place that you spend most of your time, is that right? This is my full-time venture. I've been working on Make Love Not Porn for 11 years, and this is absolutely my primary focus. So for those that don't know, could you give a brief summary as to what Make Love um, Not Porn is, what it stands for? Sure. So very briefly, Make Love Not Porn is a total accident because I never consciously intentionally set out to do anything that I now find myself doing with it. I date younger men who tend to be men in their 20s. And 12 or 13 years ago now, I began realizing through dating younger men that I was encountering what happens when two things converge. And by the way, I stress the dual convergence because most people think it's only one thing. I realized I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. Things converge. Porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes in bed. I went, whoa, I know where that behavior is coming from. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that because, as I say, at that time, nobody was talking about this. No one was writing about it. And so as a naturally action-oriented person, I decided to do something about it. So 11 years ago, I put up a no money, a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that in its original iteration was just words. It was porn world versus real world. I launched at TED in 2009. I became the only TED speaker to say the words, come on my face on the TED stage, six times in succession. But my concern is particularly with the young girl whose boyfriend wants to come on her face. She does not want him to come on her face, but hardcore porn has taught her that all men love coming on women's faces, all women love having their faces come on, and therefore she must let him come on her face and she must pretend to like it. So. <laughs> it was entirely relevant to the topic. Um, the talk went viral as a result, and it drove this huge global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. I realized I'd uncovered a massive global issue. And so I felt a responsibility to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful and effective. I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. And so I turned Make Love Not Porn into a business. And today, Make Love Not Porn is the world's first and only user-generated, human-curated, revenue-sharing, social sex video-sharing platform. We are what Facebook would be if Facebook allowed you 
to socially, sexually self-express, which it obviously doesn't. We are socialising sex, making it easier for every single person in the world to talk about, openly and honestly, in order to promote consent, communication, good sexual values and good sexual behaviour. Our tagline is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. If porn is the Hollywood blockbuster, we are the documentary. And we call ourselves the social sex revolution because the revolutionary part is not the sex, it's the social. And what's been the response to it? How has it changed? I'd love to know, you know, how people initially responded and how they respond today. Has that changed over the 11-year period? Make Love and Porn has had a universally positive response from every single country in the world since we launched 11 years ago. My only challenges have been business and financial ones. The one thing I did not realise when I embarked on this venture was that I and my tiny team would fight an enormous battle every single day to build it. Essentially because every piece of business infrastructure, any other tech startup just takes for granted. We can't. The small print always says no adult content. And this is all Mm -hmm. pervasive across every area of the business. It's not just that I can't get funded. I can't get banked. I can't put payments in place. PayPal won't work with adult content. Stripe can't. Every text service I need to use, hosting, encoding, encrypting, the terms of service always say no adult content. We had to build our entire video sharing, video streaming platform from scratch as proprietary technology because existing streaming services will not stream adult content. And so the biggest thing we have to celebrate at Make Love Not Porn is that we're still here. Mm -hmm. The business case is clear. And I have to tell you that I'm enormously disappointed at the lack of support within my industry, within our industry, for Make Love Not Porn. Make Love Not Porn represents what our industry considers the holy grail, a huge creative idea, globally applicable, that is designed to do a colossal amount of good and make a colossal amount of money. Clearly have a very powerful voice in, in not just the advertising world, but in the startup world too. You were also a big advocate for pay equity and for helping women and people of colour specifically to ask for, in your words, a shit ton of money. Talk us through some of your first salary negotiations. I mean, in that world of advertising, I can imagine back in you know nineties it would have been pretty tough for a female executive to you know to even get to that position. There can't be many of you. So this is when I was at GGT. So this would have been something in nineteen eighty seven, and I was an account manager and. This was my first performance and pay review. You know, I had a figure in my mind that, you know, I really wanted to get a pay raise up to. Um, at that what point was that in time. figure? Honestly, this was so long ago, <laughs> I now can't, can't remember. But um, so I went into my review with um, Jim Kelly, who was the managing director of GGT at the time, and Dick Butler, who was the head of account management. And so they gave me my performance review, which was very good. Then they told me what my pay raise was. And it was... I remember this, it was £1,000 short of what I wanted it to be. And so I remember thinking, okay, Cindy, start negotiating. And actually, the advice I give to women in this situation, because I felt nervous as hell, I say, just start talking. Because I just thought to myself, oh my God, oh my God, I just have to start saying something. And I've got no idea what came out of my mouth. You know, my voice sounded very little and very far away. But I just thought, I've got to argue for £1,000 more. So I just went, whatever. And I remember Dick and Jim being extremely startled because they were not expecting me to do that at all. And they looked at each other and then Jim said, "Um, Cindy, could you just step out into the corridor for five minutes? So I went and waited outside the closed office door 
And then they called me back in and they gave it to me. And I went, yes, <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, that set me on the, right, I'm negotiating everything from now on. I mean, the next one I, I remember is when I moved to BBH in 1989. I mean, BBH was obviously hottest agency in town. And so they hired me from GGT on the salary I was on. I, I came over the same salary, uh, but with the promise that, you know, I would have a performance and pay review in six months' time. So, you know, my six-month review was coming up. Um, this was with Mike Willis, who was the head of account management at BBH at the time. You know, again, I can't remember the, the exact salary number, but I do remember that, you know, I thought, right, okay, Cindy, you know, got, I've got to prepare for, for this review. And I thought, right, um, now... What I want is I really want a pay rise of £5,000. But of course, they won't give that to me. So I'll settle for three. So I basically memorized this negotiation script in my head. Want five, settle three. Want five, settle three. And I was repeating it everywhere I walked in fear and trembling. And so I showed up, you know, outside Mike Willis's door. You know, um, he called me in and he gave me this glowing performance review he said, done very, very well in your first six months here, blah, blah. And all I could hear in my head was, one, five, settle three. And he went, and so, Cindy, fantastic performance, blah, 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 blah. And on that basis, we are now going to give you a pay rise of £6,000. And I was so gobsmacked. <laughs> I was struck completely dumb. And I just stared at him. And I did not know what to say. And he thought I was really angry because it wasn't higher. And so he went, oh, oh, but, 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 but of course, Cindy, um, you know, we'll give you another pay rise, another six months time, you know, and I'm sure that if you've done this well, then, he, you know, and so basically, that was a very successful non-negotiation on my part. And I got another pay review in six months time, another pay the raise. silent sell. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I want to ask you about Saatchi and Kevin Roberts, the former head of the company who was ousted in 2016. In your early career, you turned down a job at the agency. Was that in any way related to Kevin Roberts? No, I'll tell you exactly why I turned down the Saatchi job. Back in the 80s, um, Saatchi and Saatchi London operated on the group system, um, which at the time was quite distinctive as an advertising agency structure. And so it was a very well-known fact that, that one's experience at Saatchi and Saatchi was entirely determined by whoever headed up the group that your account was in, because essentially the groups were like mini agencies, and there were a number of group heads who oversaw specific accounts. I went in and interviewed with the group head who was going to take over the DHL account and have it within his group. And I have to tell you, again, at this distance of time, I cannot remember who it was at all, but I didn't like him. And I went, I don't want to work for this person, so that's why I didn't. Now tell me about Kevin Roberts. Um, with Kevin Roberts, um, what happened there was basically a reporter called me up from Business Insider um, and an email just said, Cindy, I've been interviewing Kevin Roberts of Saatchi and Saatchi for a profile. And I was talking about the state of gender equality and diversity inclusion in the industry. And he had, yeah. he had said something like, oh, you know, there's no issue with gender equality in the industry at all. And Cindy Gallup is just speaking out about this as an attention seeker to promote herself. I thought, oh, for fuck's sake, you know. And, and so I just wrote back and said what I would generally say in these circumstances I said, you know, if that's what Kevin Roberts believes, you know, I would really urge everyone in our industry to tell him what they think of the state of gender equality in our industry. And I would encourage them to tweet at him, you know, send the email off, didn't give it another thought, really. 
And then, you know, obviously what Business Insider then published was a profile of Kevin Roberts where he said all sorts of appalling things, including the reason we don't have women leaders is because women have no ambition, or, you know, however he articulated it at the mm-hmm. time. The piece got published, including, you know, me saying, you know, I encourage people in the industry to tell Kevin what they think on social media. And the industry promptly did, <laughs> as you may recall. And then he was out. Yep. Um, you know, I will give publicists and searches all credit for moving very, very swiftly. Because quite frankly, the most appalling impact of that profile was for the women within searches and within right. publicists to see one of their male leaders actually dissing them and making it very clear that from his perspective, they sure as hell were never going to progress. And and obviously, again, women leaders within the group spoke up. Obviously, it was a huge issue um, internally um, within Sarchers and Publicists accordingly. And and so that 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 was what led to the fact that, you know, come Monday morning, Kevin Roberts had, quote, resigned from his position. And as I said in my statement subsequently, publicists should absolutely have said that they'd fired him. And also, you may recall, um, because obviously a number of publications asked me for my statement, I said, um, because Kevin Roberts was, again, appallingly, something like he had some position at publicists that was about, you know, being in charge of training and development. And so I said, you know, I see that there is now a vacancy at such as a publicist. (laughs) I'd be very happy to put myself forward as a candidate to ensure that it is very clear that gender equality is the fundamental principle in the group. I'd be very happy to do that for the same salary that Kevin Roberts was doing it on, which is $4 million. But obviously you didn't. Sadly, they did not take up my kind offer. (laughs) But the serious point, as I regularly say publicly, is the white men at the top of our industry are being paid millions to keep women out of leadership. Nobody is paying me anything to get them into it. And that concludes our episode today. Massive thanks to Cindy for sharing her powerful and very persuasive voice with us. We only blushed a little bit. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with help from Elise Hugh and Isabeth Mendoza. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It really helps spread the word. And you can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with the fantastic Reasonable Volume. Thank you so much for listening. 